Hi, friends. Good to see you this morning. Good. Like two of you are glad to see me. Cool. Glad we've established that. We'll be friends. We'll get coffee after the rest of you, not so much. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, I'm Alicia. Um, some of you might have been around uh, this Advent, this Advent season when I spoke in December. Um, those of you who haven't been around Awakening a ton should know that I'm not a complete strander. I'm not a total rando. I do a lot of writing around here at Awakening. I run our blog. Um, yes, we have a blog, awakeningchurch.com slash blog. You should read it. Hashtag shameless plug. <laughs> um, I also lead a missional community. Um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, how I'm seeing God work in our missional communities here at this church. So if you're like looking to get plugged in, talk to me. I'd love to get you plugged in someplace or to just brag about how great my missional community is because we're pretty awesome. That was kind of a joke, but it's okay. <laughs> kind of serious too. Um, basically what I want you to know about me is like all joking aside, actually serious, is that um, I've been working through this past year here at Awakening specifically what we talk about in church world as a calling into the ministry. Um, so I thought I had my life figured out and then God showed up and changed it. So that's a recipe for disaster in the best way possible, that God changes plans. Um, and I'm uh, studying to be a pastor. I'm going to seminary um, at Fuller in Menlo Park. So uh, I'm so stoked to be able to work through the Gospel of Mark with you all this morning. Mark's my favorite gospel, by the way. First of all, it's short, 16 chapters, so it goes pretty quick. But it's also full of words like immediately and at once. So you get this sense that Jesus is like running around, announcing the kingdom of God as he goes. It's pretty exciting. It's full of the sense of urgency that God's good news is here, God's kingdom has come, and we're invited to be a part of it. And it just sort of like catches us up and moves us along. Um, another one of the things I love about the gospel of Mark is that it's full of a lot of these emotional markers, lots of Greek words that signify emotion, um, particularly of Jesus himself. So in each of the Gospels, I feel like I get a different picture of who Jesus is. So if I want Jesus the thinker, I turn to the Gospel of John. If I want Jesus the storyteller, I turn to the Gospel of Luke. If I want Jesus the teacher, the rabbi, I turn to the Gospel of Matthew. But if I want Jesus the dude, the guy who I would hang out with, I turn to the Gospel of Mark, and I feel like I get these really deep and powerful human moments in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you've picked up on that a little bit as we've started moving through. We are only in the first couple of chapters, so it's fine. You can like pay attention a little bit more. Um, we'll definitely see that in some of our texts today. Um, if it's your habit to take notes, you can go ahead and pull out the bulletin. Um, you'll notice that there's not a ton for note-taking there. I'm not really big on fill in the blanks. There's just some passages I'll be referencing and a couple of quotes. Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, you can to uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through the end of the chapter, and then um, the beginning of chapter 3, 3 verses 1 through 6. But can I ask you a favor? Yes. Okay, good. Glad we're on the same page. If you're not like deeply attached to the practice of taking notes or following along, I know some of you are and that's how you learn and that's fantastic. But if you're not like deeply attached to them, I'd really love if you could like set those aside for today and just be present here and now in this moment, you and me in this together. Does that sound okay? Cool, great. Um, let's pray for a second and then we'll dive in. Gracious God, we're here to meet with you. Speak to us today, we're listening, amen. 
The series we're in right now is titled Unreligious, and it's because we've been looking at the ways Jesus is so different from the religious authorities, practices, and leaders of his day. He's shown up doing something totally different, totally new, and they don't know what to make of it. Um, We've seen the past couple of weeks a handful of stories where Jesus is in conflict, like specifically ramping up in its intensity, this conflict between the religious leaders, who we call the Pharisees, and Jesus, right? So it starts off, Jesus is teaching in a house, and um, a paralyzed man is brought with his friends, and Jesus heals him. Like, what's what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And this man gets up and walks, and no one's ever seen anything like it. But the Pharisees... In my head, they're the most sassy, so they're like, who is this guy? Who does he think he's doing? What does he think he's doing? Claiming to forgive sins. Only God can do that, right? And Jesus is like, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And he gets up and walks, and Jesus is like laying down new authority, new power, new life that no one's ever seen before. Um, But the Pharisees continue to be like really skeptical about what he's doing. They're threatened by him. Next, um, Jesus calls Levi. Remember, we uh, studied that together in small groups in service. Um, Jesus calls a tax collector who everyone thinks is the scum of the earth, and they're like, Dude, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Um, After that, last week, Ryan talked to us about how um, Jesus isn't observing any of the kind of traditional religious practices that all of them had gotten so wrapped up in. So they're like, Jesus, why don't you fast and do all the stuff we do? And he says, I'm doing something totally new. Those old rhythms and rituals, those old traditions aren't appropriate anymore when God is breaking in and totally reinventing life as we know it. Here, the last two in the series of five kind of conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus takes on the most like religious and sacred observance of their day, which is the Sabbath, right? We recognize the Sabbath from the Ten Commandments, yeah, This is in Exodus chapter 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And we're usually like, Sabbath, yeah, it's good to rest. Got it, done. But Sabbath is so much more than that. Sabbath is like crucial to the identity of the, of the, well, like religious and cultural identity of the Jewish people. It's who they are, not just what they do. Listen to this passage from, um, from the law. When we come back to the very first passages in Genesis, we read, on the seventh day, God finished his work, which seems a little off because didn't we just hear that God rested on the seventh day? So why is God finishing work if he's resting? So ancient rabbis like struggled with the Torah and their kind of concluding commentary was that there was a unique act of creation that happened on the seventh day, that God created Sabbath, God created rest, like a rest that's so inclusive that's beyond just like stopping from work, but abundant life kind of rest. This is new life that God has created. This is something that the universe was lacking without, like rest and restoration and new life created specifically on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath. So the observance of the Sabbath is like crucial to who the Jewish people are, and it's, um, it's very much wrapped up in the idea of life and experiencing God's blessing. Listen to this passage from the law. This is what's kind of bookending the law after um, Moses has sort of presented the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you, sh- you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, or any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Notice that Sabbath here is about life, and it's also about what God has done for them, that God has rescued them, that God has restored them. Notice that Sabbath is also not just for them, but it's for other people, for foreigners in their lands, for the like needy and alienated people among them, that they have been blessed to be a blessing, that they have been given new life so that they can extend new life to other people, right? That this is what Sabbath is always, always about. The thing is, at the point of the story where Jesus shows up, Here, the Sabbath has been turned into a mountain of fine-spun interpretations that's all about, like, where's the law? Where's the line? What can I get away with? What do I have to do? What's required of me? Not how can I experience the blessing of God? How can I live into the life that God has given me? But, like, what's the law that I have to keep, right? And Jesus is saying, no, you've missed it. You've totally missed the point. Here's new life and restoration offered, and you're caught up not in life but in law. Here's the story that sets the stage. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, again, are upset with Jesus because he's doing things that they um, don't approve of that's not kind of in line with their social norms, with the traditions that they've set up and they've established. And Jesus here recenters Sabbath practice around life and rest and God's work, right? Jesus is working totally differently than what they expected. And he's saying here, the Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath, and you're caught up in law and you've totally missed it. You've totally missed the point. And this sets the stage for what, um, what we're kind of ramping up, the climax of these conflicts with the religious leaders is in this story that comes next in chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Man, like that got serious real quick. The Pharisees immediately leave and begin to kill Uh, plot the death of Jesus. They begin thinking about how they're going to kill Jesus. Like, this is serious business. They're taking this really seriously. And we've seen, like, the evidence that they're compiling against Jesus kind of mount up. To be fair, they're, like, they're not the kind of people who police normal people. Jesus has attracted a ton of attention. He's been running around doing all kinds of crazy things. And they're like, this guy's straight up cray. Like, we can't handle it. Like, he's got to go, right? 
But the thing is, notice how early we are in the Gospel of Mark. There's 13 chapters still to go, and they're already beginning to plot Jesus' death. That means that Jesus' ministry is lived knowingly in the shadow of the cross, right? That Jesus is constantly, constantly moving forward to the one thing he knows he is called to do. is like death, but also we know that that's not the end of the story, right? That death after comes resurrection and new life, right? But we'll set that aside for a second and come back to another time Jesus goes to to the synagogue. He knows he's like coming against these religious leaders with friction, that they're opposing him. He knows what they're thinking, right? And yet he shows up again, knowing that this is going to happen. He's moving into this knowingly. He's facing a dangerous situation like straight up, not messing around. The thing is, though, he's shown up to proclaim the good news of God in the place where you would expect to like find the work of God. And these religious leaders, they're there not to meet with God, not to see what's happening, but they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Listen to what happens here. A man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on a Sabbath. Jesus and the religious leaders both noticed this man with a shriveled hand. I mean, it's kind of hard not to. I don't know how this goes, but in my head, it's kind of like T-Rex-y, and I would like want to kind of keep that back behind me. But uh, the religious leaders see him as a test subject, a way to go Jesus, to test him, to see what he's going to do. The question here is not could Jesus heal the man, but would Jesus heal the man, right? This isn't about their belief or disbelief in his abilities, but whether or not he's going to break the rules, whether, he's not, whether or not he's going like, to go along with the way they expect him to go, the way they expect him to work, um, or the way they expect God to be doing things. They think they've got it figured out. But Jesus looks at this person and sees a person suffering and in need. Jesus always says, I see you. I know you. I see your humanity. Jesus doesn't look for, look at this person as, as a, a situation or whatever. He sees only the person, yeah? And these guys had shown up not looking for what God was going to do, but they'd look, they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They're looking for a reason to spy on him, to like amass more evidence against him for how they can kind of get rid of him, get him off the scene, right? This isn't about their belief in, in his power. They seem to have got that down. They figured out that he has some kind of divine power that they know nothing about or they don't know what to do about it at all. Um, this is about like whether or not he's going to stick with them right? Like whether he's going to conform to what they think should happen. They're the people who are in charge of like keeping God's people as God's people, separate and set apart and following the law and keeping up those traditions, right? So they thought they figured out how they like want things to go. They thought they figured God out. They thought they figured out what God wanted them to do, and they thought they were doing it right. And then Jesus shows up, and he's not doing what they thought. So obviously, not they're wrong, but he is wrong, right? How often is that us? I, like, I find that the minute I think I've got figured, the minute I think I have God figured out is the very same second I totally get it wrong. I've totally missed the point, right? The second I think God dislikes all the same people I dislike, pretty sure I got it wrong. <laughs> the second I think that um, I figured out what God is supposed to do, Pretty sure I've got that confused, but I think 
is supposed to happen, right? The second that I think that I know how my story is supposed to go, how God is supposed to work in my story, is the very same second I've missed what's actually happening, what God is actually doing. And that's what's so tragic about this story, is that these are the people who are supposed to know. They're the people who are supposed to be able to recognize God at work, God moving. They're the people who have the most knowledge. They're the people who have the position. They're the people who have like the way and ability to see God working and God moving, and they've totally missed it because they're caught up in the way that they've constructed the world to be, right? But God is not confined by our rules about God or our way of perceiving God. Jesus shows up and reconfigures everything. Everything's turned upside down, and this is really threatening to them. I get that. Um, Jesus has shown up with a radically inclusive vision of what God's work looks like and who gets invited to participate into God's story, and these guys want nothing to do with it. They've totally missed it. They're carrying out all of these external acts that are religious or like put together, um, but they're deaf to the call of need in the world. How often is this us? God God forbid this is us often, or at least me. You guys are probably way more together than I am. But often this is me, that I'm the one who's blind because um, I'm caught up in the way I think things are supposed to go. As I've sat with this text, I've been really wrecked by this. These people showed up not looking for God's work, not looking to truly learn or to worship, but they're looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. They're looking for um, reasons to be critical. How often is this us that we show up with like critical spirits, like looking just for criticism and critique, right? Um, Again, probably you have it more together than I do, but this is often me. Like I show up super like ready to critique, ready to criticize. And I do this particularly in the areas that I'm really good at or like think I'm really good at, like my areas of expertise, right? Like I'm studying to be a communicator. I'm a teacher, I studied English, right? So somebody shows up and <laughs> they're teaching and I'm like, what, what, what are you doing, really? I would have said not that, or would have said this, or would have done that, or like, irregardless, really? Not acceptable. <laughs> Inside joke, I suppose. <laughs> um, but, like, how often, how often is that me, that I'm like critical and showing up to critique rather than to truly learn? How much am I missing because of cynicism and criticism and sarcasm? And how, how can I like exchange that for a spirit of true worship, of true attentiveness to what God is doing? Because Jesus is constantly there, like even in spite of their, um, their criticism, their... Uh, they're looking for reasons to accuse Jesus, Jesus still shows up and gives them the option to respond, right? He keeps trying to get their attention. He keeps trying to break through. And I'm so thankful that Jesus is always gracious. In, the, in spite of my critical spirit and my criticism, Jesus constantly offers me grace and constantly offers me an opportunity to step in. That's what he does here with the religious leaders. He says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. That's super intimidating. Again, like if I was like shriveled hand, I would want to keep this pretty hidden, want to keep this kind of private. But Jesus asked him to stand up to give the religious leaders a chance to like, see and respond? Are you going to see his humanity? Are you going to know him? Are you going to respond to his need? Are you going to continue to look for reasons to criticize and critique? He wants them to be able to have a front and center seat for the new life that he is offering, right? And to see if they can take him up on the offer to jump into that new life, that restoration. Um, 
Jesus is fully aware of their mindset, of their plots against him. He totally knows what's happening. He's Jesus, obviously. But he wants to try to break through their hearts. He wants to give them a chance. Jesus wants them to see, which is different from the kind of um, secrecy that he's taken before, right? In some of the other healings, he's like, don't tell anyone. It's not time yet. He stayed like outside um, of towns and of public places and stuff. This is different. This is front and center. He says, this can't be missed. This is so important, right? Jesus asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, and they remain silent. This is, again, the way Jesus is facing the opposition with compassion. He says, what's lawful, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And embedded in this question is echoes of the law that they would know. These are the religious leaders who have this down. They've got this totally, totally memorized. This is the bookend of the law. Listen to this from Deuteronomy. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. This is embedded in the entire thing. Choose life. You can choose life, right? This is what Jesus is saying to them. Good or evil, life or death, you pick. And what do they do? They remain silent, right? The the question's not hard. Like good or evil, life or death, right? Choose good, choose life, it's there. And they remain silent. They've got nothing to say, they've totally missed it. They've totally missed out on everything. And the question has, like, has its own answer. Doing good is not limited to certain days and life. Choosing life is the essence of the Sabbath. But again, they've missed it. They've missed out on life because they're caught up in the law, right? Jesus recenters Sabbath practice around human need and reiterates the Sabbath is about life and rest and restoration. And here's the key moment, their chance to choose it, to choose life, and they remain silent. They do nothing. These guys are willing to tolerate the suffering of another human being and in this instance to use it as leverage against Jesus. But Jesus doesn't use people for ulterior purposes. Jesus always sees people and sees their humanity and their needs. Jesus doesn't use people like these Pharisees are doing. May we always find ourselves in that position. God forbid our religion ever gets in the way of actually seeing people's needs and responding to them with the compassion and love and humanity that Jesus has. People matter far more than systems and are far more important than rituals. And for Jesus, human need here poses a moral imperative. Where good needs to be done, there can't be any neutrality. There can't be any silence. To remain silent is to choose the evil rather than to choose the good. There's no question here. Of course Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. We always knew that that's where this was going, that Jesus was going to heal on the Sabbath. That's what it's about. That's the entire god design point of the whole thing. He looks around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. 
Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Again, that hits me every time. Super serious. Gets serious real quick. Here it is, the thing that everyone's been waiting for. This is it. This is what like the Pharisees wanted. They wanted Jesus to break the rules. Now they've got their evidence. They've jetted. They're like plotting immediately how they're going to kill Jesus. And they've missed it. They've missed the whole thing. I want us to focus on the man with the shriveled hand for a second, and then we'll come back to the Pharisees. Here he is, man with shriveled hand. He's like <laughs> wanting to hide it, right? I imagine that it's um, awkward and embarrassing and scary to be asked to stand up in front of everyone. This is a healing that happens without prompting. Sometimes we see um, plenty of, well, often we see plenty of people who come to Jesus say, hey, um, heal me, or like heal my daughter, heal my son, my servant, all of these kinds of things. This man just happens to be there and they've noticed him. And Jesus says, you, I see you, look at me, keep it right here, stand up in front of everyone, reach out your hand, I see your need, reach out your hand, okay, and he reaches out his shriveled hand to find the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the living God, this is what Sabbath was always about, that God reaches out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and reaches to us, God reaches out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and rescues us, God reaches out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to restore us and to redeem us and what is left for us but to reach out our own shriveled hands to meet that mighty hand and outstretched arm of the living God. Jesus says, look at me, reach out, find your hand completely restored. Um, and this is, this is it, this is the whole thing that life is offered, life is given, rest and restoration, this is what Sabbath is about. And so often, we miss it like the Pharisees have missed it because our hearts are hard, our hearts have turned away from the work of God. Again, you probably have it more together than me, but this is me all over, this is me constantly. The withered hand of this man is nothing compared to the withered souls of the religious leaders here. And so often, I wish that this were not true, but so often I find myself in their position rather than in a position with a soft heart responding to the work of God. I have a hard heart and I'm stubborn and I'm critical, full of criticism and just bad news bears all around. <laughs> it's not, not the greatest at all. And what's really scary to me is that Jesus' anger at this hardness of heart is really, really strong. Okay, I've mentioned a little bit about the emotional markers or the words used to describe emotions in the Gospel of Mark. There's only one other place in the Gospel where the emotional words are this strong, this graphic, this forceful. Any guesses where that might be? It's right before Jesus goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's in deep anguish about not wanting to go to the cross, about like the pain, the fear, all of those things about what lies ahead of him. If that gives you any sense about like how deeply distressed he is at the hardness of their hearts here, which says to me that the... Um, the enemy of like divine grace isn't this opposition or this authority, but it's indifference. It's this hardness of heart. It's um, not like malice necessarily, but just like this unwillingness to understand, this unwillingness to receive the grace of God, the new life, the new creation that God is offering. Um, and what's even 
more scary to me, what's wrecked me as I've sat with this text, is that this isn't just used to describe this like stubborn hearts, isn't just used to describe the Pharisees and Jesus' opposition. In chapter six and in chapter eight and all across the other gospels, it's used to describe Jesus' followers. Jesus' disciples themselves are accused, or Jesus says, are your hearts still hard? Are you still so stubborn? You still don't get it. And if we call ourselves followers of Christ, not everyone does, but if we do, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, we have to ask, how often is that us? How often do we have hard hearts, stubborn hearts, turned away from the work of God, unwilling to recognize the work of God moving in our lives, in our community, and in our world? I mean, the answer for me is often. Again, you probably have it more together than me, but I'm a mess. I'm judgy. I'm critical. I'm sometimes a plain jerk, (laughs) like all of these things. It's just my heart is so hard sometimes. But Here's the good news, that God constantly offers us new life. God is giving us grace. God is moving forward, making a way for us to receive that grace, too. Listen to what God promises in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I give your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. God promises to take this heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. The thing is, I mean, I don't know how God works for you, but for me, I'm, again, super hard-hearted sometimes and really stubborn, so this kind of swapping of hearts is real painful, guys. This can be rough, super rough. It feels like um, (laughs) that scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you sort of like reach in and swap it out. It's tough. I probably shouldn't have made that reference in church, but I was raised on classic 80s movies, and like once I start, it's too late, can't stop. Um, but, but seriously, I talk about this with my MC girls all the time in missional community when I'm saying, like, God's working on my heart. All I have to do is this, and they're like, I got you, girl. I know what's happening. I know what's up. Because it's like a constant process for me, this swapping out of a heart of stone, something cold and rough and, like, not doing anyone any favors for a heart of flesh that's soft and beating, responsive to the work of God in the world. Because that's the thing, that God is faithful to do it right? That, that's constantly my prayer. Lord, do what you need to do, but be gentle. Be gentle as you swap out my heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Make it warm and beating, responsive to humanity and the need that I see around me. May I find that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, responding to the needs of the world with the eyes of Christ. That's what happens when we swap out our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh, that we are able, enabled then to respond, to reach out our own shriveled hands, to meet the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the living God, and we find that we've been um, ushered into this new life, this new creation. And as that's given to us, as we've swapped out our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh, we become ambassadors of that new creation. We get to carry that out to others. We get to carry that um, new life and offer that new life rest and restoration to the entire world, blessed to be a blessing. So when we're confronted with Jesus, who brings this new creation right in the middle of old, we're given kind of two responses. We can either respond with hard hearts, or we can ask God to work that out in us, and we can reach out to Jesus. That's what we do in communion, right? That this is um, a symbol and a practice that reminds us Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen again, and with resurrection has come new life offered to everyone freely, right? That all that's left is for us to reach out and take it 
to put ourselves in the way of the gift. That's what one of my favorite writers calls it, that God's kind of constantly moving this grace, and it's up to us to sort of position ourselves in the way of it, that it's happening. All that we need to do is to jump in, because we're invited, we're always invited. So as we come to take communion, I ask that you remember that. Like, I think as you reach out to it, remember you're reaching out to Jesus to offer this grace and new life that's given to you. This is the new creation being worked out in us, us being prepared to be ambassadors of Christ's new life, knowing that as we receive new life, we're then ambassadors. Um, As we close today, I'd like to ask the band to come back up and stand with me, and we'll pray a prayer together. Um, Yeah, that wasn't a joke. Stand with me. Um, This is on the back of the bulletin. This is something I'd like us to read out loud together, if that's okay. As we move forward to extend the new life that Christ has been, that Christ has given to us to other people as we walk in that new life, I'd like us to pray this prayer thoughtfully and reflectively as we move forward throughout the week. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is discord, harmony, where there is error, truth, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen and amen.